and really what it is to inhabit a belief system that instead of saying, you know, we're flesh robots on a dead rock spinning in the middle of nowhere, it's subjected to the random forces of like bad luck, bad timing and bad genes. In fact, we are given this incredible organism that transduces elements of our deep spiritual reality to our conscious awareness through the symptoms that we experience, that everything has inherent meaning, that there is emergent beauty, and there is incredible interconnected balance in all things at all times. Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is about cats. Why? Because studies show that anything having to do with cats gets more clicks on the internet. And really, all that matters at the end of the day is clicks. Actually, none of that's true, except for the fact that the cool fact that it is about cats. And it's interesting because it's about attachment styles. And cats, apparently, according to new research, have attachment styles that mirror people's attachment style. So cats form these weird, deep, secure bonds with their uh, only slightly psychopathic owners, researchers say. Now, sorry, I'm a dog person. No offense there. <laughs> I like cats too. Anyway, attachment theory was developed back in the 50s. That would be 70 years ago. So if you're going to live to maybe 180 like me, imagine 70 years from now what we'll know. Anyway, so it was developed in the 50s, and it suggests early in life people form one of four styles of attachment. There's secure attachment, insecure called ambivalent, avoidant, or disorganized. And all the bad dates you've been on were one of those, those you know, three at the end. And now there's a new study that finds out cats are the same way, which makes so much sense. And for those people who think cats don't care about us, it turns out 64% of cats are secure attached, 30% are ambivalent, and the rest are mostly avoidant. And this explains so much about cats and about cat people. I'm just saying here. And it's funny. Those percentages actually mirror attachment styles in human infants and other animals, including dogs and monkeys, according to Oregon State University. And apparently they think cats have greater flexibility and depth of social relationships than we used to think. Just because some cats are jerks, not all cats are jerks, is the moral of this cool fact of the day. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health for an exclusive 10% off. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is Senolytics. 
Synolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Synolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Synolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com Dave. Use code Dave. Now, you're like, okay, Dave's totally going to talk about cats. It's going to be a veterinarian on today. But you know that's not true because I have someone infinitely cool than a veterinarian. We're talking about someone who's a women's holistic health psychiatrist and doesn't use drugs as a psychiatrist. Board certified in psychiatry, psychosomatic medicine, integrative holistic medicine, and looking at root cause resolution approaches to psychiatric syndromes and symptoms. So basically, I think you could say hacking crazy people, although I'm sure I just pissed her off when I said that. Kelly Brogan, or I say Dr. Kelly Brogan, author of a brand new book called Own Yourself. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Have you ever heard anyone mix like the cat lady syndrome with hacking crazy people in the same introduction to you? I'm not often left speechless, but you might have achieved that just now. <laughs> it's like, I got nothing here. <laughs> uh, to be fair, I am drinking my third shot of espresso for the day made with- He's under course, the influence. <laughs> bulletproof clean coffee beans, you know it. But yeah, I'm just on a roll today. And because I'm working on the book launch for Superhuman, uh, my anti-aging book, which came out just about three weeks after um, your new book on yourself, which is doing really well. Um, I'm in book launch mode. This is my fourth podcast interview of the day, and I'm just all over the coffee. So, guys, time just, is looping, and you're not sure if you already said something or you're about to say it. It's like this. I've I've been there. I was looking <laughs> at you on Skype. Strange and your, dimension. Your face was morphing into a cat. I'm like, no, I, I'm in that Twilight Zone series. It, that didn't really happen either. I'm just making up stuff. But I do want to talk about owning yourself because, look, there's a lot of people who are coaches. And, and I love coaching. Uh, in fact, <laughs> I started a coaching program, Human Potential Institute, uh, with Bulletproof and Dr. Mark Atkinson that's going strong. And one of the things we teach our coaches is like, you're not a therapist. Uh, my wife's an MD, a drug and alcohol addiction emergency medicine. And she had to do advanced therapist training, but she's also not a therapist because there's another year of training that goes into that. And there's psychologists, and then there's psychiatrists, which are sort of the prescription pad heavy-duty version of that. And you are the heaviest of the heavy duties uh, in terms of that hierarchy I just described. Yeah, very much so. In fact, I, you know, I, I was about, you know, the the fifth decade into the effort on the part of the Guild of Psychiatry to legitimize itself as an actual medical specialty 
through the adoption of psychotropic medications. You know, that's one perspective on how it is that um, psychopharmaceuticals got such a foothold is because psychiatrists fundamentally aren't, we have like an identity crisis. We're not sure if we're really doctors. We don't examine patients often. You know, we don't need to do blood tests much of the time. And the nature of our diagnostics are so subjective you know, that there there really is no uh, associated biological, um, you know, sort of testing or rigor, validated approach. So we we are very vulnerable to, um, I think, the reductionist aspects of conventional medical thinking, looking at the body as machine, that kind of a thing. But I was a huge believer, so much so that I specialized in prescribing to pregnant and breastfeeding women, actually. So you were basically working for the dark side, weren't you? <laughs> Very much. It's still in me, so watch out. It's still in me. <laughs> I am not your father. Uh, that was my the worst Harry Darth Potter, Vader voice. Harry Potter and Voldemort. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> in fact, uh, knowing what I know, having written a book on uh, holistic fertility and, and all that, it's not that there isn't a place for prescription drugs in in certain cases of you know life-saving uh, things around pregnancy, but generally speaking... I would say steer away from those if you can because they're unknown and unintended side effects versus things like food where we kind of know what most of it does. But even then, green tea, it turns out, depletes <laughs> folic acid if you drink too much of it. And we say, oh, drink green tea instead of coffee. Uh, and you know, so there's stuff we don't know, but at least foods are generally safer. So the holistic approach seems like a good first line. Where did you get that mindset? You know, you, So you, you did this for a lot of your career and, and you've changed your mindset. Where did it come from that made you believe that you know, we're meat robots, essentially? I think that I am a, a product of our dominant culture, you know, that I, I ultimately, you know, <laughs> had, a, had a childhood that um, gave me a sense that there is a certain kind of character uh, that if I could adopt that to as close to perfection as possible, I could finally achieve a sense of belonging, love, acceptance, um, and, and safety. And I think that so many of us were raised uh, with the experience of conditional love because our parents were raised with conditional love that we very easily fell into this programming that control is a means to uh, security, right? And ultimately a means to accessing love. And of course, that's the ever receding oasis on the horizon. We never actually get there. And that's how and why, you know, you can end up having all of the accolades, all of the achievements, the best-selling books and check off all the boxes and somehow still often in your 30s get to this place where you're like, why do I feel like everything I've been doing just isn't working? And I have this <laughs> sense of hollowness, you know, like I feel, I feel like I'm wearing a mask. I feel like there are whole parts of me that if anybody ever saw them, you know, they would, they would run the other direction and I don't even want to look at them. Right. So this, um, this mindset lends itself to mastery, achievement, productivity, but in, um, in this kind of desperate grab for something, um, it's like, you know, licking an ice cream cone when what you're really thirsty is for water, you know, it's, it'll do something for you, but it won't get you to, to that primary need. And I, I got really far on that program, you know, when I was in, in MIT for college, I worked a suicide hotline. It was mentored by psychiatrists. And a lot of what we did was help get people into the mental health center at MIT and get them access to medications. And I thought, okay, we've, crack the code of human behavior. We know how to ease suffering. We just need to get people more access to medication. And that seemed like the best way I could help people. Uh, but 
you know, I wouldn't even go so far as to say I don't recommend medications. I'm a big, big believer in informed consent. And I, I, you know, developed an appreciation for informed consent when I was prescribing to pregnant women. It's just that I was only ever exposed to a keyhole of the science, you know, at that um, Mm -hmm. stage in my training, because it's the nature of the system. You know, it's not something that the conventional system ever stated it would provide, uh, which is tools for wellness and healing. They provide tools for symptom suppression. And so, you know, that's what you get when you go there. But if you want the full picture, if you really want informed consent, we're in a position to in- inform ourselves, obviously, which is why we have conversations like this. I, I love your description of, of what happens uh, in, in your 30s to a lot of people. Um, so what was the wake-up call that made you say, all right, I'm going to be a little bit more functional and holistic uh, in my approach that ultimately led you to write a book with the crazy title of Own Yourself, which I actually really like. So, so <laughs> tell, tell me, about, did you like wake up one day, some patient came in and like threw their Wellbutrin at you or something? <laughs> what, what was it? <laughs> that would have been, I should, I should look into <laughs> alternate, alternate storylines. Um, you know, it was the rumbling of my my soul, right? So it, it was around, it was during my fellowship. I was, like I said, specialized in prescribing to pregnant women. So I was writing this woman a prescription for Zoloft. I myself was also pregnant at that time. So it's like this empathic bridge, right? And I, I had this feeling, this intuition sort of rise to the surface that I wouldn't want to take that medication that I was prescribing this woman that I cared about who is in my office, that I wouldn't do it. I don't care if there's 25,000 cases in the medical literature substantiating the relative safety of this medication. I wouldn't want to take it. So I just kind of ignored that because it was inconvenient. And it wasn't until I was nine months postpartum on a routine physical, I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Mm -hmm. And that same feeling, that same voice um, came through again and said, "Uh uh-uh you're not going to take a prescription for the rest of your life. You better find the escape hatch, right? And so I knew I could have written my own prescription. I knew what conventional medicine had to offer. And so I highly uncharacteristically uh, found myself in a naturopath's office. And I was the kind of person who was (laughs) huge, huge eye roll, major dismissal with the arsenal of, you know, the published literature on my side to talk about how dangerous supplements were how reckless and irresponsible alternative medicine, you know, uh, was. And I, you know, worked with this naturopath who happens to be quite an intellectual. So that helps, you know, she wasn't like wafting sage around or like, you know, dropping feathers on the floor. A a good naturopath should be able to school you if you want to say, that stuff doesn't work. And you're like, oh yeah. All right. Okay, good. So you found a good one. Okay. (laughs) I did. And I needed that bridge of science uh, because of my native skepticism if I didn't have that intellectual bridge, I don't think I would be here today. Uh, and I do think a lot of people need that. Like we we need to see in order to believe, even if we fundamentally already believe, and then, you know, uh, we would be able to see if only we chose to. But I I found myself in her office. I saw my, my thyroid antibodies go from the high 2000s, my TSH of 20 into the normal range in black and white. And I made very basic dietary changes. That's all I did. And and you would think like I would have been so excited and sparkles coming out of my head. And instead I was like launched into this incredible righteous rage 
Mm-hmm. I just, I, it, it obviously came from deep. It could have been ancestral for all I know. I mean, it came from deep within and I just felt this fire ignite in me that burned and blazed through the night for years. I, I spent thousands of hours on PubMed just indignant really yeah. that I had never been told. I had, I had one hour of nutritional training in my entire medical school, um, experience. And I, you know, I wasn't sleeping through class. I was doing the work. I didn't miss it. Uh, and I had never been told that you could put uh, a chronic condition like an autoimmune condition into remission. And so I felt duped. I felt betrayed, which is the first emotional sign that I had parentified the medical institution that I had, you know what I mean? Like projected traits onto, onto the practice of, of medicine that are more appropriate in a, in a, you know, a daughter parent dynamic where I, I just trusted without questioning. And when I found out that I hadn't been told the full story, I was, um, I was quite angry. So I've had to burn some of that off (laughs) over the past couple of years. Um, but I, I was surprised and I, you know, I wonder what you'll think about this because I thought once people have the information, right? So I wrote my first book, just dumped all this information in there, the science, right? And I thought, well, once people have this information, they'll never touch a medication again. And what I found was that's not the case, right? That there's much more that goes into taking a medication, even though, you know, nobody really wants wants to take an antidepressant, surprisingly. Um, they do it because they don't feel they have a choice. But once they even have more information about the lesser known risks or the highly overpromised benefits or perhaps some evidence-based alternatives, they might still not choose to opt out. And so I, that's when I became interested in the role of belief and how what what's really happening when we're talking about the engagement of health practices is the exercising of a belief system. And so I started to study the anatomy of that, right? So the placebo, nocebo effect, expectancy, and really what it is to inhabit a belief system that Instead of saying, you know, we're flesh robots on a dead rock spinning in the middle of nowhere, subjected to the random forces of like bad luck, bad timing and bad genes. In fact, we are given um, this incredible uh, organism, you know, that transduces elements of our, you know, deep spiritual reality to our conscious awareness through the symptoms that we experience, that everything has inherent meaning, that there is emergent beauty, and there is like incredible interconnected balance in all things at all times. That That's another option, right? So uh, I found that there's science for both, right? There's science for yeah. both. So which one feels better? Because YOLO, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> choose, choose what feels better and begin to create um, a safe incubator for that belief to grow. How long did it take you to get over your sense of righteous rage? Uh, I'm not sure I'm totally over it yet. Um, <laughs> I have this has been a lot of the the nature of my spiritual work. and and honestly because, you know, I don't know, I don't know how many folks listening are going to be affronted by um, references to, you know, reincarnation or, you should, or past. You should affront the hell out of people who have problems with being affronted because it's good for their personal growth. So if you're listening and you're affronted, the unsubscribe button's over there and you can either listen and learn or you can get the hell out. And I'm okay either way. I'll still love you. 
I'm the kind of person who affronts just by waking up in the morning. I I was going to say, you already mentioned soul, (laughs) which pretty much I think they pull your medical license for talking about souls. And now you're talking about reincarnation. And by the way, guys, I know I never did go to Tibet and learn meditation from the masters or do ayahuasca with shamans. So there's no such thing as reincarnation. You can just be safe in your little shell. Don't even worry. Okay. Keep going, Kelly. (laughs) Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. You know, so, so I've been told like many, many times actually by different clairvoyants that I have uh, many past lives as a warrior, right? And that I came in with a lot of those gifts, if you will. And that's not actually what I'm here to do this time around. And that's very resonant to me because, you know, so many people have told me over my career, like, oh, you're so courageous. Thank you for your bravery. And it's never felt uh, accurate because it doesn't feel that. It feels actually harder to self-suppress than it does to express in this way. It's very easy for me to whip my sword out, you know, and try and like David and Goliath this this situation. And there were times where I thought, well, maybe I'm here to take down the pharmaceutical industry single-handedly, right? And I understand, of course, now I'm several years in understanding that that's actually not only not what is uh, representative of my healing path personally, but it's actually not the way that I'm going to serve um, humanity either. So only someone who's been a warrior and is willing to fight, who is a licensed psychiatrist would talk about seeing a clairvoyant in past lives. (laughs) So (laughs) like that takes serious balls. Can I just say that? It's, uh, and somebody said to me, so if your current self met your past self from like 10 years ago at a bar, would they even talk? (laughs) (laughs) No, definitely not. Definitely not. I've had a micro reincarnation in this in this lifetime. But no, I mean, it's been the nature of my work to see that as long as I fight the system, I am perpetuating the yeah, war. It, it makes it stronger. You, you got to show people how to do it better. So we, we have some commonalities there, you know. Um, yeah. It, it, there, there's great pleasure in breaking big, dumb, evil things. Uh, but maybe you can evolve them instead of breaking them. I, I'm begrudgingly working on the same thing. Or maybe I just focus on actually myself. Like maybe I just focus on the chopping wood and carrying water of of being the healthiest version of Kelly Brogan that I can every single day, which by the way is a full-time job. And the rest will organically emerge or become obvious or apparent, you know, the way in which I can serve best. And so I've really in the past couple of years focused my advocacy on making sure that, you know, I can put a microphone and a video camera on these uh, recovery stories that defy the dogma of the conventional system, they're not supposed to exist. These outliers, these spontaneous remissions, these um, remission <laughs> cases that shouldn't be possible according to everything that that I've learned. And they, they are possible. They're living and breathing evidence. And if I can showcase those, then people can know what is possible so that they can make a more informed decision, right? Because if you're diagnosed with Graves' disease, for example, and you don't know that it's possible to put that into lasting remission, then you might opt to have your thyroid surgically removed. You might weigh the risks and benefits as told to you by your doctor, and you might make that choice. But if you know that it's possible, even if it just happened one time, and we just published the first case I've ever found um, of uh, lifestyle-based remission of Graves' disease in peer-reviewed public, um, published paper. And now many people hopefully will know it's possible so that they can make the choice. They might still opt for surgery, but that's where informed consent comes in. It's almost like crowdsourcing the information that you're not going to potentially get at your, your doctor's office. I, I really like the way you're thinking about that. 
and you're talking about your personal evolution, you sort of have an unfair advantage because you know, you've studied therapy and you've studied uh, psychology and you've studied psychiatry as just part of your medical training. So you, know, you, you can see the layers of things uh, in other people that you're treating for sure. And someone walks in like, oh, this person has PTSD or this person has uh, you know, not enough acetylcholine or whatever else. And you, you've kind of got that later laser vision. When you hold it up to a mirror though, <laughs> does it work? Uh, is it easier for you to have self-awareness with all of your training than, you know, uh, than a muggle? <laughs> hmm. I have to say I've been the toughest nut to crack because most of the people that I've worked with either directly as patients or through, you know, my, my online program, their, their, um, shadow material, if you will, the, the secrets that they're hiding from themselves are often like their light parts, right? Are often the fact that they are like bold and intelligent and capable and strong and all of these things that they don't identify with. They identify with the with the bad object, so to speak, in psychological terms, and they project the good object outside. So they see all the people with their wonderful lives who are having these amazing experiences, but they're full of the badness, right? I have had something of the opposite experience where my shadow material, the the sort of small man behind the curtain, like pulling all the strings, was so invisible to me that I literally didn't know it was there. Um, and it it includes my fears. You know, I, I like I, I've spent many years of my adult life totally unaware that I had any fears. Like, what are your fears? So like, for example, I never thought I was afraid of dying. I thought die or not die, who cares? I could die in 10 minutes, what do I care? I also was an atheist for many, many years. Yeah, so that too. was, <laughs> yeah, so it was kind of this nihilistic thing, like whatever, who cares? Um, I never felt afraid of embarrassment. I never felt afraid of loss. I just didn't, I didn't feel afraid of, you know, big industries coming after. I just didn't have access to that. Um, and today, you know, after developing intimacy with these parts of me, the lazy part, the manipulative part, the liar, the cheater, you know, like we all have all of these. We all have all of them. It's part of the kaleidoscope of, you know, the the human. So if we all have all of them, you're going to be hiding some aspects from yourself so that you can develop familiarity and a sense of control over the curated aspect of you that you're presenting to the world. Right. And so as I've developed familiarity with my shadow realm, I've found tremendous amounts of pain there, you know, and that I I just wasn't aware of because my defenses are that are that effective. I've noticed coming up through engineering in, in Silicon Valley, the more hyper rational uh, people are, by the way, computer science <laughs> kind of guy here uh, from a family of Ph.D. engineering types. Um, the, the more rational you are, the more defended and less attention you've paid to any of those other sides of yourself. So, so if you believe you have no soul, uh, you believe that emotions don't matter because you, you know, there's no reason to have an emotion. Therefore I don't have yes. an emotion sort of thing. Um, that the harder it is, like the more pain there is, is that an, that's just my observation. Cause I came up in the tribe of the engineer, um, is that a true statement for non-engineers, or is that just uh, more for something that I, I came up that I observe because of my environment? 
I think there's a lot of accuracy to that. You know, the the intellectual defensive structure, there's all sorts of different defenses, right? Avoidance, um, self-recrimination. I mean, mine is when I feel threatened. Okay, so here, how do I know when the, when I am afraid, right? How do I know when I'm afraid of, of rejection or abandonment or betrayal um, or experiencing pain? The signature for me is that I get a little tightness in my chest. I get like a hot flash up the back of my head. And then I feel this urgency to communicate my point Mm -hmm. by by text or email. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to say it. I want it so you can't respond, right? (laughs) Right, right, exactly. So it's not by phone conversation. It's not meeting up at a cafe. You know, it might be by voice note. It's and and that's because when I am afraid, my defensive structure comes online and my powers of rhetoric are sharpened. My intellect is more available to me. And in this way, I feel no feelings, none. I feel no feelings. So I can, you know, deliver my point and then I can walk away and, you know, go to dinner with a friend. Uh, in fact, I would feel relieved probably. And no, no, no fear, no sadness, no shame, no, nothing. And that's the the mark of an effective defense. When you start to recognize that signature, and it normally has a sense of urgency around it. And again, avoidance is another signature one for a lot of people, like I got to get out of here. When it has an urgency around it, that's like a little tap on your shoulder to say like, "Mm, stuff in there, right? There's like unmetabolized pain in there. And you can choose to check it out and learn about it or not, but know that it is running the show. Know that it is the reason that you are responding the way you're responding and why you can't access the equanimity of a pause perhaps, or, you know, this kind of um, more adult dispassion around the outcome of whatever the situation might be. And obviously this comes up a lot in romantic relationships when we feel like we, we are right about what we're saying. Uh, and that's the signature of, of pain. And again, it's optional to explore that. But when you do, you begin to understand how, how to no longer live. Um, it's like a whack-a-mole, right, game where, where you're just like constantly shoving it down from one place. It's popping up in another all over your relationships and all over your dynamics at work. And, and it's exhausting. And then you never really get to feel authentically whole. You never get to feel like, you know what? This person knows my whole situation and they still love me. That's an experience that not many of us have had um, because we are wearing that mask. And we're, we're instead of just taking it off and, and looking in the mirror and saying, wow, who is this? What does she look like? What is she made of? We're just strapping it on tighter and tighter and tighter. And we're self-medicating, you know, either through actual medications um, you know, or alcohol or workaholism, that was a huge one and has been for me, a huge one, um, or sex or, or whatever it is. We're trying to, um, meet these primary needs in these secondary ways. And it never quite feels, never quite feels right. So you're saying my problem with coffee is, is a problem. Is that- <laughs> There's childhood trauma beneath that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I- I actually really resonate with what you're saying. And, and if if you're one of the people listening who's the highly rational skeptic types, uh, I'm with you. Um, and, and my knowledge here, and, and the reason I'm telling you this is, Kelly, I want you to shoot holes in what I'm saying um, yeah. if it's worthy of having holes shot in it. 
um, is that you have a rational part of your brain and it's useful. Uh, and yeah. you have at the same time an irrational <laughs> part of your brain that's also useful and they coexist totally. and they don't always agree, but neither one yes. is superior to the other. Um, that took me a long time to understand because if you're a truth table philosopher or computer scientist, it's a zero or a one. And you can't be yes. both a zero and a one, but your consciousness seems to be both. Accurate, yes. not accurate? There is an order of recruitment. Okay, yeah, talk about that. Um, of those parts of the brain, you know, and I, I, I don't love being like super reductionist about like, you know, the reptilian part and yeah. the midbrain, you know. However, we know behaviorally in our bodies what it feels like to not have access to our rational executive functioning. And we know what it feels like when that comes back online. And when it's not available, we look a lot like, you know, most of us like little kids who need it our way, right? And are yeah. having some version of a tantrum. The reason that I have achieved what I have in my lifetime is because my version of a tantrum is something that society values, right? So like- <laughs> Oh my God, that's a great quote. <laughs> okay. That kills me, all right, keep going. It's true. So, so as I was saying, you know, like my defensive structure, my version of a tantrum is to become even more uh, articulate, if you will, and to have more access to my intellect um, through the fear vector, right? But for most people, it's like they, they, they can't think straight. They start, you know, sort of saying things they're going to regret. We know what it feels like in our bodies when that part of our brain is being recruited in, in an order of primacy. Um, and then we know what it feels like to shift into our cool and to begin to inhabit the other's experience. Because when we are in our animal brain, we are incapable of inhabiting another's experience effectively such that there's only one reality. Now, you may be interested in perspectives that suggest, well, actually there are relative realities and there are multiple, you know, versions of every experience right. or not. But all you have to do is think about like five people witnessing a car accident to know there's going to be five different stories of what happened. And that is the nature of our day-to-day -day lived experience. So the more you can get into another's perspective and hold what I call uh, maybe mind, right? So hold your version of reality, your story about it with some lightness and with room for the possibility that there might be an entirely different version of the story. Because that's what I found to be the most powerfully operative in the realm of, uh, you know, physical illness, um, encounters with the medical system and diagnostic labels and associated medications is we can either tell, you know, this story that something is wrong with you, you're sick, you're fundamentally broken and you're destined to be a patient for life and see how that feels, right? See if you can ever fully shift out of fight or flight when you're living in that, you know, paradigm, or we can tell a totally different story that may also be true, maybe more true, maybe less true for you, which is that, you know, these symptoms are a meaningful expression, an invitation to balance and to understand something about yourself and the way in which your body expresses, you know, these, these needs. And that is, it was never a reflection of something being wrong with you. And in fact, you know, that's the feedback I get is that, you know, for many of the people I've worked with or encountered, I amazingly was one of the first to ever tell them that nothing was wrong with them. And that's all that it took for them to start this healing journey that ultimately led in shedding a diagnosis and shedding seemingly, uh, you know, decades of medication or, or potentially a lifetime 
orientation towards the, a system that they would be dependent on. What do you recommend that people throughout the world, when, when you're dealing with a critic who's, who's either a science troll or a, just a, you know, a hater, for lack of a better word, what is the inner dialogue trick? What is the, the thing you do so that you're either not feeling the pain or so you feel the pain, but then process the pain and like go through the process mm-hmm. that you have in your book on yourself? Like, like how, how should people deal with critics, especially public critics? Bless them. Oh, bless okay. them. Here's why. Here's why. There are a couple of different um, reasons. One, and an important reason is, you know, I've I have had much experience um, with with trolls, and actually, I've so much so that I've yeah. been able to observe over time how their tactics have changed. Isn't it cool? Okay, tell it's me. Yeah, because you know, the biggest troll wave I dealt with was in 2016, and it was actually based on, uh, or the, the the sort of trigger for it, or whatever, was a home birth uh, article that I wrote. Um, high five! I delivered both my own kids. You're so right. Okay, so keep going. <laughs> Well, apparently, um, not everyone uh, agrees that this. Well, you know, okay. So here's the thing. I a, a whole website was established um, calling me an ableist. You would be accused of the same label, so you should know that this could happen to you as well, Dave. Well, at least so you're an a canist. A- this was a biblical he- quote, right? <laughs> No. Sorry. So an ableist, <laughs> an ableist is apparently um, somebody who believes that. Other people should be able to do things just because I'm able to do them, including have a natural uh, home birth, right? And I'm or, just sorry, do ableists understand that some people have penises and some people have vaginas? Because I'm pretty sure some people can do things other people can't. Just, just saying. <laughs> There's, I don't think it's like a well explored slanderous term. But the it's almost like has like a eugenics kind of like vibe to it, and the way they use you it. You mean as like a, constantly improving as a species over time, under our own conscious development? Oh God, no! Let's it. not yeah, do that. You would be very susceptible to this. Table. Th- there we yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the implication was that I'm shaming people who uh, are not able to be, you know, without meds or whatever, not take whatever it is that I do. I'm shaming people who who can't do that, and you know, so I've come to a. Um, Okay, so let me back up. So there was this massive troll wave, and it was, uh, you know, an important element is that pharma funds many seemingly neutral uh, outlets. Um, And so people think that, you know, that they are totally independent and they're not necessarily. And many of these are like automated efforts, right? So Cheryl Atkinson, I don't know if you've seen her TED talk on astroturfing, but it's oh, a yeah. must watch. It's, it's a must watch. And she talks about how, you know, the idea with astroturfing and how it's operationalized is to create the impression of organic and real grassroots sentiment that's actually totally uh, synthetic. And so then real people think that's organic and they glom onto it. So, but the nidus of it is, is, is robotic. It's, it's automated. It's algorithmic even sometimes. And, and one of the ways you'll see, be able to detect, I don't need to tell you this, but a a troll comment is it'll have like 20 likes in the first 10 minutes, right. Or 15 minutes. And then it's just not probabilistically the case for most, you know, at least not my following it, it wasn't the case. And so that's how we could start to see, but the, the troll approach used to be, you know, calling me a cunt and saying they would spit in my face and cut me and all this stuff, right? You got to love people like that. You're like, yeah, that's going to work. <laughs> but it's right. So ultimately they're like, okay, maybe there's a subtler, more nuanced technique we can employ. And so over time now I've seen that it's, 
it's like, I've been following you for so long and I love everything you do. But now that you've said this or referenced this study, I'm out of here. Right. So it's like, it's like approval and then dismissal. They have like kind of a new, uh, new technique. And again, some of it, I still think is, is part of an organized, um, industry effort. Oh, you can pay for that stuff. It, it's right, real. You, yeah, that's, that's that's the dark yeah. side of public relations. It's real. And by the way, the antidote for that that I found works 100% of the time is you literally say, that's fine. The unsubscribe button's over there, and you make a little arrow with a greater sign and two little dashes. And when you just show zero shits given to people who yes. act like that, everyone else who's a real follower is like, they'll give you like 50 thumbs up or likes or check marks or whatever service you're on. They're actually like, oh, this is a person with integrity. And like, you don't live and die based on whether someone reads your content because your content stands on its own worth. And so right. that's what I do. And it works really well. What do you do? Do you have something I can steal? Yeah. So, so I, no, I don't. I, so I never engage, but I also am strangely wired because I, I don't care. It really doesn't, bother me and never has. And maybe that's because I've been on the side that would have trolled myself. Yeah, me too. So like I, I sort of get it. Um, and I get how threatening, you know, what I'm saying is to the paradigm. It is, it is. And so of course, you know, my energy, I'm going to suck in their energy. I made, you know, I made a joke at some point there was this, um, I'll just call her, um, uh, journalist. I don't know. Sometimes anyway. there's a lot of people who use that label, but they really don't deserve <laughs> right. it. Okay. So a paid shill she, of the pharma industry. So got it. Focused, <laughs> so focused on me and like messaging about me on Twitter every day that I thought, wow, this woman is thinking about me every day. We have like this very intimate relationship. Like, what is this about? This is so strange, right? It's like a really deep connection because there is a connection in that kind of engagement. And so when you engage in response, then you're saying I consent to this relationship, right? And if you uh, set a boundary the way you have, or you just don't engage, then you're saying, no, I don't consent to this relationship. You can continue to put energy towards it, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to reciprocate. Um, and for the most part, it's a, it's a very important skill, I think, to cultivate for all of us as adults to understand how we can let people be who the hell they are. This has taken me a very, very, very long time, and I don't pretend to have expertise in it yet, but it is something that I, I have now established as like a core value that I believe everyone should have the liberty to be who they are and not need to be a certain way in order for me to feel okay, and I'm not going to be a certain way in order for them to feel okay. And we'll all just sort of work towards that in our separate realities, living our, you know, living out our own uh, level of consciousness. How does that work? Even from like an own yourself and in, in your book perspective. So if it's everyone, if it's okay for everyone to be the way they are, okay, if they're flaky, judgmental assholes who spray glyphosate on their soil and like throw plastic in the ocean, at a certain point, like even if I'm a highly enlightened being, isn't it okay to punch them every now and then? Okay, that, that was a joke. But, <laughs> but in all seriousness, like, like isn't there a limit to this? We have billions of people on the planet. Like how does that work? Yeah, I know. I'm talking mostly on an emotional level. Okay. Um, <laughs> Because the truth is, like, I do believe in regulatory legislation and checks and balances, and I think the lack thereof and the fox guarding the hen house of every regulatory institution in this country is a huge, huge part of the sickness yeah. um, and, and corruption, right? So I, I believe in that. Um, however, I'm speaking on a very individual level 
on the emotional level, because I very much inhabited the perspective that, you know, people needed to, the, the big industry folks, the big pharma folks, um, anyone fundamentally representing a power that I disagreed with, they needed to be a certain way. And I knew exactly how they needed to be the, the challenge. And it may just be a spiritual challenge, but the challenge in that is that it's still based on control. Yeah. I am seeking to control these individuals and I feel unrest inside of me until and if they conform to what I need them to do. And so in my experience as an activist and particularly around pharmaceuticals, I have, uh, I have found that to really eat me up inside and it makes me a less effective activist, less present, less heart centered, less available to the mission because we burn out, you know, through that path. And so instead, if my focus can be on my own healing, on my own nervous system, on my own self-care, then when the opportunity for self-expression comes, when the opportunity for clear and present action presents itself, then I know exactly what it is. I know what to do. And I'm not going to have an inner tantrum about it, you know, because in, in a lot of the, the activist realms I traffic in, it's way dark. It's, and it's like Nietzsche says, you know, like we, we can become the monster that we're fighting. Uh, and and so, so I've I've kind of been learning that you know over time. So now I'm going to step in it in it big time. So the the whole idea of of activism, I I, I don't understand it. Okay, I used to have Asperger's yeah. syndrome. I, I'm an engineer. I'm like, if you have a problem, just like go solve it. But I was talking with my kids about the the climate strike. Okay. I actually fund research on uh, with the XPRIZE Foundation <laughs> on carbon capture. I, I kind of believe this matters, and I'm working really hard on getting grass-fed agriculture back out there to restore the soil, and, and the, the whole carbon cycle seems important. So I, I'm working on this, right? It's, it's built into the ingredients I use. Our oil is coconut-based, not palm-based, because we need more jungles. Like, like, you can see it, right? But... I'm talking to my kids, and a bunch of kids you know, took a Friday off of school to, to go raise climate wars. So my kids, they all had their parents drive them somewhere to go stand around and protest something. And then they all got in cars powered by fossil fuels and, and drove home, right? Like, what did they accomplish? And, and my daughter said, well, they're, you know, they're, they're saying that they're raising awareness. And, and I go, and what was the outcome of raising awareness? And nobody knows, but from where I sit as someone who's like, I'll roll up my sleeves and solve the damn problem, right? How do you, and this is going to be a real tough question, I think, but how do you think about the emotional, spiritual, logical side of being an activist for the things you believe in, like home birth, like replacing drugs with lifestyle and things like that? What's the role of activism versus actual action? And is there a difference? Yeah, I think, um, I love this question. I think that authenticity has become the most powerful form of social currency and that we are so sensitive to inauthenticity that we are no longer going to get away with telling the world how it should be yeah. without actually practicing and living that, right? So I, my greatest credential is not anything on the wall behind me, right? My, my greatest credential is that I live this life. I, you know, I, I have a pharma free household. I am dedicated to not reflexively reacting fearfully to my symptoms. I meditate every day. I eat organic food. You know, I am, I do coffee enemas. I'm, I live, I live this life 
And that's also how I know, you know, the layers that are uncovered through a dedication to the path of self-discovery, which of course I think of as the healing path, as the health-oriented path. It's learning more about yourself, about your body organism. So I have absolutely come to conclude what you have, which is that the more we focus on beating the bad guy out there, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this idea that as soon as we win this one issue, as soon as we get our way, everything's gonna be fine. That's such a distraction, you know, from actually making the day-to-day -day choices, the householder um, experience of, of activism, I have found, and that's why I've, I've said, uh, you know, that I believe that self-care is the greatest form of activism today. Because if you don't know, you know, if, if you're not choosing the coconut oil, then you don't know what it is to have an experience of making a, a different choice that you want the world to also make. And I think that that level of authenticity transmits to people, um, and we can kind of, kind of smell it otherwise, and we feel manipulated and controlled, or like somebody's telling us what to do, even if we happen to agree with it. It's not inspirational. Um, it's like yeah. expectation oriented or, or judgment oriented, right? Yeah, exactly. It, it was uh, Mother Teresa um, who had definitely did some good things, and probably some things that I don't wouldn't really be in alignment with, but overall, pretty darn good. Um, she had a quote that I, I really love. Someone asked her, said, will you come to our rally against the war? And she said, no. And they're like, what do you mean? She said, I'll come to a rally for peace, but I won't come to rally against the war. Mm -hmm. And for her, it was like, I, it doesn't work that way. And, and what I've learned in the, the neuroscience side of what I do with 40 years of Zen and meditation and all is, is that it seems like our, our nervous system, our emotions, it doesn't understand the word not very well. It doesn't mm -hmm. understand negatives. So when you have that don't be evil, uh, which uh, you know, our friends at Google was their slogan. All your emotions and spiritual side here is, is be evil because it doesn't yes. understand the negative. Yes. So when you're protesting against the war, you're supporting the war. When you protest yes. for peace, you're supporting peace. And, and so when someone says, I'm going to go to a rally to for climate awareness, I'm like, I'm aware of the climate because I'm breathing. Thank you very much. Like, what are you going to do? Right. So you know, if, if you're going to go to a, a, a rally to clean up the oceans, I'm like, hallelujah, you go do that. But if you're going to go there to like, tell me what to think, it's like, how about you pound sand? Cause I already kind of know what to think, right? Whether you're in yes, a rally that for something absolutely. I believe or don't, I don't care. Like stop rallying, start doing. And I don't know, I might get a lot of hate mail for that, but whatever. <laughs> no, I've had a lived, I've had a lived experience of exactly what you're describing. Like I fought, I fought the system when I learned everything, you know, that I hadn't been taught in medical school, I went out there to fight. And I found there was very limited yield to that. And also I was miserable. Yeah. Right. Well, there's that too. Yeah. It, it really makes you feel way, empty to do that. that. Yeah. And my poor kid. And, and then when I shifted, instead of giving my energy to, to fighting what, you know, exists, as Bucky Fuller says, like, you know, you can't fight the existing system. You create one that makes it obsolete. So I focused my energy on the creative, right? I focused on, on channeling my efforts towards, towards celebrating these healing stories, right? Yeah. Of, of people who had recidivistic schizophrenia now in remission of bipolar disorder with multiple suicide attempts now in remission of lupus and Graves disease and migraines and, and one after another, after another. And I have this whole team of clinical volunteers, you know, to write these up because it brings me joy because yeah. I, I literally weep with, with joy about it. And so if, if that's how I am engaging in activism, not only is it again, 
focusing on the creation of what's possible and, and fostering that, but it also creates an experience in me that's better for everyone in my life, you know, not to mention my, my daily experience. How does this tie into something that's in your new book? You talk about the teleologic perspective and epigenetics. What, what's the connection here, if there is one? Yeah, so when I first um, began to learn about epigenetics, which really had not a whisper of mention in my, you know, the, the timing was such that in my medical training, so this was all kind of self-taught, I guess. Um, I remember thinking, okay, so if we can modify gene expression through environmental inputs in practically real time, then why haven't we adapted to perchlorate from the dry cleaner and yeah. glyphosate and all of these, you know, 100,000 plus unstudied industrial chemicals and GMOs and whatever, like, you know, 5G networks and Wi-Fi. Why haven't we adapted to that? You know, the human body is extraordinarily um, resilient, always seeking homeostasis. What's the deal? And I, I came to what I guess, you know, is again, this quasi uh, mystical perspective, but it could also just be framed as teleologic or purpose oriented, which is that we're not meant to, right? We're not meant to, that there is a kind of meta homeostasis. There's a meta balance of all living, um, beings, you know, and, and, and non-living um, contributors, agents, and forces on this planet and then systems beyond that requires that we conform to a certain kind of expression. And you could, you could call what's happening now evolutionary mismatch, right? That we've, we've wandered off the path of what we are destined, uh, how we are destined to express. And the symptoms that we are experiencing, you know, inflammation-driven, are a call back to that path for a reason, because we are meant to, you know, move our bodies and be out in the sunlight and sleep in a certain way and experience certain types of um, stress and not experience others. We're meant to experience pleasure and sensuality. We're meant to feel joy. You know, we're meant to eat actual food so that we can have that informational dynamic with the natural world. Um, and we're meant to really limit, if not eliminate our exposures to these synthetic, um, you know, chemicals and toxicants because they themselves are a symptom of our disconnect with the planet and our hubris, right? So how is it that all of this is, is kind of meant to bring us back into, um, our optimal orientation towards the whole. And so, I don't know, I've kind of come to, to see that, that we are, we're in an ordered universe and that there is, um, there is a reason for our struggles. And that's, what's also led me to label the people who get captured by the psychiatric system as the canaries in the coal mine. I've come to see them as those who are the most exquisitely sensitive yeah. to the things that are actually wrong, you know? And so they express that sensitivity through symptoms, whether it's mood, behavior, cognition, often physical as well. And, we tell them something's wrong with you, but you know, in fact, it's something very, very wrong with most of the systems that they're living in. And that's one of the challenges of psychiatry is that it refuses to acknowledge that anything is wrong on the planet today. That is, that is so enlightening. And I, I look at my own path of just thinking maybe 
uh, given that food doesn't have an impact on how we feel, uh, and it's all just a question of willpower and logic, uh, you know, I'm I'm having these experiences where my you know, my brain doesn't work and and all these things. It's just effort based, uh, mm. and that's uh, that's just like not not a rational, real picture of reality. And then I read this book, and I wish I could remember its name, and you may recognize it. It was one of the very first people who studied environmental illness. And you had people who thought they were Jesus, you know, people with serious schizophrenia, schizophrenia. And he would put them in a clean room and have them fast and whatever for 10 days, and magically they're perfectly fine. And then he'd expose them to secondhand smoke, and then they're Jesus again. And he's like, it's reliable. I pull it away, I put it back. He's like, he's like I can't tell you why this is going on. I can just tell you, this is an input to the system. And they're actually not crazy. They're responding to their environment. And I was like, mind blown. The environment around you might control how you act. Who would have thought? Um, that's the definition of biohacking in a nutshell right there. Do you know what that book was? Does that sound familiar to you? Uh, so first of all, my jaw is like on the floor because no, I don't. And that's exactly the conclusion it, that I've come to through 10 years of clinical practice. You know, it, it's It was like from the 1950s. Yeah. It was one of the very first books. That's and it, so interesting. Yeah. I love that. I love it. And you know what? What I found, because remember, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that psychiatry doesn't have any objective tests, right? So there's no EEG, there's no blood test, there's no brain scan, there's no spinal tap, there's there's a conversation that can span from seven minutes to two hours, and that's it. And then it's one person's subjective impression of what what's up with you, and that can be your label, you know, for life. So we don't know whether depression for you is a B12 deficiency or like a psycho-spiritual emergence, right? Or maybe it's a toxic relationship or maybe it's a thyroid imbalance or maybe it's your blood sugar or maybe it's the birth control you're taking. We don't know because the the term is just descriptive, right? It's not an objective yeah. diagnosis. So, so I'm a big, big believer in like, let's pick the low hanging fruit, right? Because your schizophrenia, you know, it could be that you have emergent clairvoyant capacity. And if you were in a you know, a tribe and had an elder who could teach you how to work with your gift, you'd be, you'd be the, you know, the most powerful healer in your tribe instead of being the one, you know, in the padded room. But it also could be that you have gluten antigenicity and you just should cut it out of your diet and you'll be fine in a month. Right. So why don't we start with the basics and, 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 you know, see about the reversible, highly reversible physiologic imbalances that can masquerade as psychiatric uh, syndromes, because I found that those are the most rapid to resolve. Like literally in 30 days, you have uh, symptom remission and, you know, then there's literature to, to support this. Uh, and then once you've addressed the physiologic imbalances, then you can begin to look at emotional um, toxicity and, and, you know, negative thought patterns and again, spiritual, you know, elements of your life experience. So, so that's the second time you talked about, you know, emerging clairvoyance and, and things like that. Uh, which I, I'm just completely tickled by because I, I, I know people who just know stuff they're not supposed to know. I'm not saying, you know, why or why not. And there's all sorts of different explanations, but I'll just say the world's way more complex. And when you, when you dig into the altered states of neuroscience, measurable states, inducible states, <laughs> you're like, wow, there's some people with some seriously, you know, X-Men level skills out there cognitively. And it's just hard to predict who they are and, and whether they know they have it, whether they have control of it and whether they're crazy and people who think they have it and don't. And it's just such a messy, unstudied world out there um, that is rapidly becoming visible because of the miracle of big data. You're like, oh, 
turns out we can see patterns that we couldn't see in people before. So I, I'm kind of excited that some of what you're talking about there um, is, is going to come out. But how do you know when people are like, I have special powers, I can feel the universe around me. Like, no, you're, you're just sensitive to toxic mold and you're seeing colors because um, you ate uh, that stuff that grows on brassica called alternarium. <laughs> and so, but how do people know? Like, like, are you feeling an emotion or are you just feeling like the, the lead you ate in your turmeric? Well, I think, I think that's why we have to begin there. So you it's start the most, with the toxins it's the in the most environment. Humane, yes, it's okay. the most humane point of entry uh, because the yield can be so robust and so rapid that you wouldn't want to say, you know, first off, well, maybe you do have clairvoyant, you know, powers <laughs> and maybe we need to get you in touch with the healer who can or shaman who can help you cultivate them. You know, I th I believe in in an order of operations, and that's why you know in in my practice, I mean, ask any of my patients. I mean, I have like very very hardcore, heavy-handed expectations for compliance with the first month of the protocol. Yeah. It's not like an eighty twenty, like do your best. It is a go big, go home, no cheats, not one molecule ever for thirty days, because. I want, not only do I want to, you know, have a semi-controlled experiment so that we can establish their physiologic baseline, but I want them to have a felt experience of shift because that felt experience of shift in, in, in being in their body um, is what leads to the mindset change that says, oh, I do have power. I do have control. I do have wherewithal to guide my own process. I'm not the dependent, helpless, sick person I thought I was. That needs your cells need to radiate that. You need to feel that, right? You can't be told that. It doesn't work that way. It's just, yes, you can give permission, but you cannot be convinced, let's say. Um, so I believe in starting with, you know, the, the toxicant exposures and, you know, one of my biases is, is the coffee enema that I learned from my mentor, Nick Gonzalez, um, because I saw before and after in my practice, uh, we're focused on medication tapers and the before, you know, was that many of these individuals were so medically unstable that I felt like I was running, you know, uh, an outpatient hospital and the after, you know, I could take a multi-year medication taper down to several months. And I knew that the detoxification element was a huge part of it, that the body burden that these individuals are carrying, perhaps because of their metabolic um, sensitivities, was immense and is immense. And so I'm a huge believer in, in beginning with that. And, and it starts with awareness, as you're suggesting, of all of the places in which we could be exposed we're so in alignment. I, I figured out at the, the 40 years of Zen neuroscience side of things, if I feed people a low toxin diet with high energy and ketones and cognitive mitochondrial stuff, 2.5 times more intense personal development meditation before they hit the wall. And if I don't feed them right, they can't do the work. And, and yes. so to do the deep personal development, it requires electrons. And electrons, in a study that I have nothing to do with, they showed that the amount of available willpower is a function of mitochondrial function, which is what makes I electrons. Love that. So you're like, hey, what if you could make a little bit more energy? Could you put the energy into evolving yourself, right? And it's, it, that's something that's just missing from so many conversations. And maybe the, the thing you know, we're calling your mental illness, it's just you ran out of energy. So you couldn't manage your emotions. So you acted like a jerk. It, it, that was the case for me, for sure. Uh, and to this point, how many yeah. people with low blood sugar um, say stuff they regret later and then they come to you 
I'm like, why was I acting like such a jerk? I yelled at my kid and I yelled at my boss and whatever else. What? Totally. That, that's why I call it like sending a signal of safety, right? Because if we can entrain the autonomic nervous system toward balance, which happens through these physical practices, right? It happens through diet. It happens through resolving um, blood sugar imbalance, taking out antigenic foods, inflammatory foods. It happens through, um, you know, detoxification. That's uh, just on the physical level, your nervous system is now co-conspiring with you towards equanimity, right? So, so now not only is your, your, your psychology more freed up because you're not in that reflexive fear, fight, flight, freeze, appease, the list gets longer, like all the time I'm, I'm studying this phenomenon, but no longer are you in that reactive zone of just the same pattern over and over again. But now you have that like witness consciousness available to you. And it sounds so spiritual, but it's actually, there's a neurologic signature to that, right? So that is not available to you. We we're talking about the different parts of the brain um, when you're in that survival mode. And that can be driven by beliefs, of course, and thought patterns, but it can also be driven physiologically, right? And and with toxic and burden and, you know, inflammatory imbalances. So yeah, you front load with the this strong physical foundation of, of physiologic strength, and then you free up all this energy, exactly as you said, for you to begin to interact with your life differently. All right, that is awesome. Now, what if you stack that with just a little acid? <laughs> so funny you should ask. So it's it's interesting because I, because it's probably part of my kind of somewhat rigid thought process and my desire to organize things mentally that I, I do believe still in this order of operations, right? Okay. So, so I have a chapter on psychedelics in, yeah. in Own Yourself, and it's it's largely just a compendium of of some of the most interesting science I've found. And then it's a good you know, chapter. Some, it's it's worth buying the book just for that you. chapter, by the way. Thank if, you. If someone listening is interested in that, yeah. Yeah. And there's a remarkable story from, from the trenches of one of my former patients who, you know, made it so far through our work together off multiple medications after 25 years, but she had one of the most severe trauma histories I'd ever encountered. And, you know, she had worked with different healers and therapy and, you know, it wasn't until she interacted with, um, plant medicine that, she had this experience she wrote about. I mean, it's literally one of the most beautiful things I've ever read of just profound resolution and, and transformation of the the pain that she was carrying. And interestingly, the self-blame yeah. that she was carrying, right, which is a, an underbelly to a lot of, um, you know, sort of sexual abuse dynamics. But, you know, what I found is that to navigate in the realms of most psychedelics, particularly, you know, ayahuasca and actually I should, it it could be any, you, you really benefit the most if you can maintain a kind of conscious awareness throughout the experience. And that's what the, the shamans who are guiding have, right. They, Mm -hmm. they, they, they can participate to an extent, but they have mastery right? They stay present and they don't get swept up into the story of what's happening and leave the present reality. They are navigating multiple dimensions at once, if you will. Right. Mm -hmm. And so again, like we were saying that witness consciousness is that observing eye is not going to be available to you. If your nervous system is like a hot mess and your gut is inflamed 
and your your brain is damaged, right? So <laughs> so if you can engage this order of operation, so none of the patients I've ever worked with in 10 years um, through medication taper and healing have ever done psychedelics while I've known them. And that's a pretty interesting, I mean, that I've known of, but they, yeah. I think there was, and I think it's because intuitively we all kind of had the sense like, yeah, this could be a very powerful thing for you, but maybe at a certain point, right? At a certain point where your physiologic foundation is strong, you've begun to really cultivate that witness consciousness through meditation, and you can go into this self-exploration, right? And and navigating this inner terrain um, with a sense of, of mastery. So you can come out and integrate that because so many people who have, you know, negative experiences with psychedelics, they get blasted into this other realm, then they're blasted back and they don't have any idea how to show up to work on Monday, right? <laughs> so there's there's no through line. There's no thread that takes them from the before to the during to the after. And if, if we're going to work with it as a, a healing technology, um, I think that's pretty essential. I look at the the universe of things that makes you uh, see pretty colors <laughs> and uh, probably a lot more. And there's uh, certainly there's plant medicines, uh, and I've seen all sorts of visions of things that may or may not be past lives or altered states or maybe just dreams. Who knows? Uh, I've seen some pretty heavy-duty healing profound stuff with holotropic breathing, both with mm-hmm. Stan Groff, the guy who invented it, along with his wife or uh, you know, with other healers. Um, and I, I've also seen some really heavy-duty stuff just in altered states using neurofeedback. You know where there is no plant medicine. You're never doing altered breathing, yes. but just like you, you showed your brain what it could do, and you went there, and you're going, "Oh my God!" Like you know, what language am I speaking? Kind of things. Yeah. So, it, is there like a an order of of operations, an order of, of of superiority, an order of things to try? Should people learn pranayama? Should they try holotropic mm-hmm. breathing? Should they do EMDR before they do plant medicines? Or mm-hmm. is, like, is is there you know, how do we, if someone's listening to this, like, I, I want to expand. I know I'm going to have to fix my food and remove my toxins. They're clear on that. What's next? I mean, is it, is it, is it just like talk to a talk therapist? Like, like just give me the order of things that you would think the average mm. person goes through. Yeah. So I do think that, um, therapy, like classical okay. counseling so kind get of, rid a of toxins, eat right, mm-hmm. do therapy first three in order. I, my, I am a huge advocate for family therapy, actually, okay, if it. it's relevant, if yeah. your family is living and, you know, whatever, if it's relevant, um, because I find that most of us have some, some truths to share, you know, with our family of origin that we would never have the courage to do alone and that a, a skilled family therapist can create the container for that. And there's really no substitute for it. And again, this isn't relevant for every single person, but for mm-hmm. many of us, it's very powerful. So I, I think that that um, that's cannot the first time on the show to just to, to say, okay, that's the first thing you should do, and I, what a great idea. Okay, I think it's important, and and I, I'm not a huge advocate for like sitting on a couch and yapping about your life, but I think family therapy is very powerful. Um, I think there are many trauma based practices. You mm-hmm. mentioned EMDR that are important to engage up front. Why? Because we're looking to shift, we're looking to turn on your vagal nerve, right? We're looking to shift you into autonomic balance before you start to engage the bigger guns of accessing, you know, the, the divine through mystical technologies. Um, so 
Yeah. And then I, I find that people get tapped into their own intuitive compass through this process of getting clear. And then they get called to, you know, all these different things, whether it's homeopathy or flower remedies or shamans or healers or biofeedback or vibrational therapy and all these different, um, interesting things. The menu is huge. It's Acupuncture. It's, it's, it's too huge for any one of us to, you know, assert expertise on the whole, um, marketplace. But what I do find is that, that people are drawn to what they need to heal. And that's been my process over the years is I've been drawn to different things. I am biased towards Kundalini yoga meditation because it is a technology that allows you like holotropic breathing to use your own body instrument to engage in altered states of consciousness safely, um, without the need for guidance or a shaman and where you begin to understand, oh, my mind tells me a lot of stuff that may or may not actually be accurate, right? Like cool. if you're holding your arms up for 31 minutes and breathing, you know, doing breath of fire, your your mind is going to say, your arms are going to fall off. You're going to hurt yourself. You need to put them down. You have a lot of stuff to do. This is ridiculous. Like stop. And then if you just let it kind of do its thing, eventually it'll go quiet. And there's kind of this like this whiteout that comes into the consciousness where you where you break through this liminal layer and you're like, Oh, wow. My mind got quiet, right? But it can take for some of us that kind of an exercise. It's almost like an endurance exercise because I don't know, my mind doesn't get quiet if I sit down for five minutes. Like it it takes time and it, it apparently takes some of these um, ancient practices, uh, whether pranayama or otherwise, to to get me there. And so I, I'm a huge believer in accessing that in the comfort of your own home. I, and the, the two fastest non-drug ways for that would be breathing and some of the tantric practices. You know, there's things yes. you can do in the bedroom that'll put you in very altered states for long periods of time. We have to go into that. But you know, the, these are those altered states where there is value. Whereas when I was a, a pure engineering guy, I was like, these are just recreational states. And you're like, there's something else mm. going on. Right. I, I have uh, one final question for you, which is, I'm actually fascinated to hear what your answer is going to be. I just came out with Superhuman. This is my. Yes. Hey, I'm going to live to at least 180, at least if I want to. Uh, and here's how I'm going to do it you know, the whole anti aging side of things. Uh, you're well trained as a medical professional and you know a thing or two about environmental medicine and what's going on. How long are you going to live? Mm. <laughs> how long do I want to live? <laughs> that's the that's real question. I, I have, as a part of my process, had to surrender a sense of certainty around anything and everything, right? So if, if I were to say I was going to live to a certain age, then that the implication would be that I know that that's what's best for me. And my life has taken so many unexpected turns, um, you know, not the least of which was you know, falling madly in love with my current partner when I was happily married and, you know, taking me down this rabbit hole of personal development and exploration and and self-discovery that it really taught me, uh, you know, personal crisis, if you will. Mm. Um, it's a, it's like a training camp in, you actually don't know what's, what's best for you. And so Chop wood, carry water, take care of yourself, get clear, and then show up every day with fresh eyes, right? So so that's kind of my approach at this point because I don't know if it's best for for 
me, for those who love me, for me to stick around forever, or for me to take off at a certain moment. And if I pretended to know, then I would probably be exercising some of my old tactics of know-it-all-ism, um, which is something I've <laughs> I've had to go to rehab for many times. Um, but I would I would love to access. You know, I have um, a spiritual teacher, Joseph Aldo, who told me he's like he literally looks like he's I don't know thirty two, and he's like well into his late fifties, I think. Um, and he, and he told me, he said, you know, I just decided not to believe in aging. And he's like, I believe, I believed it's that simple. You know, you just kind of like extinguish right. the, the opt out of the morphic field, you know, it's like extinguish the association. And so I'm very interested in that because I think that we are, have all bought into a certain kind of programming. Oh yeah. Um, that it takes, I mean, obviously that, that goes without saying, but it takes a tremendous amount of conscious rebellion um, and cultivation of something different, of, of a relationship to vitality that has to be very active in order for it to be inhabited on a daily basis. And, you know, I look at even pictures of myself from 10 years ago, and I not only feel some degree of like pathos for that woman, um, but I also feel like I just, I was, I don't know. I mean, I was still on a, a gluten-free diet and all the rest. And I feel like more vital today by leagues than yeah. I did 10 years ago. And I, I'm sure you would agree. And, and there are many of us who feel that way. So what are we tapping into? What's that about? I mean, I think that's so exciting and and so fascinating. So the, the aging backwards thing while dodging the question in the most elegant way. <laughs> Nicely played, Kelly Brogan, MD. <laughs> See, so I did there, laughing makes you younger. So that I just took another two years off your life right there. I mean, You're welcome. I, I added two years to your life. That's what I meant to say. Um, it's, uh, it, and just in, in that morph morphogenic field thing, um, I just told people I celebrated my 25% birthday when I turned 46. So like, there you go. That's my new, my new mindset. And I'm telling my dumb biology, although actually listen to me some of the time that that's the case. So I'm tricking it and I feel. Well, so what do you think about this? I have, um, I have a very, I wonder if she would care if I said her name, but anyway, I have a very, um, vital, radiant, glorious colleague who is, I consider her an elder, right? Mm -hmm. One of one of the few. So I know she's older than me, but she insists on, on never telling anyone how old she is because she doesn't want their preconceived notions projected onto her. She doesn't want, she's an empath and she doesn't want to carry that baggage. Yeah. So what do you think about that? I, I think that there's some merit to that, but if she's an elder and she's doing her work, you're... Okay, now we're going to get super out there, but like your own body's energy field ought to be able to develop enough resilience to not give two shits about small-minded yeah. thinkers who think you're going to be old and disabled. Right? Yeah, so yeah. then again, um, you know, if what she's doing is working, who am I to criticize that, right? Uh, so uh, I think though, if you're going to be out there and, and you're saying, I am vibrant and my eyes glow, <laughs> Uh, and I can show up, and I'm 85 years old, and I am an elder, and I'm here to serve. I want a world full of people like that. That's why. That's why I wrote an anti-aging yeah. book. Like we we need people yeah, like that. Yeah. We're like, dude, I'm barely even started, and I'm 85. And when you see that, I love it. And and you're 20 years old, you're like, oh my god, like 
I want to be like that when I'm old because I can't even tell that person's old. Man, that's like going back to that whole activism thing. I'm going to protest yeah. against aging or I'm just going to go out there and age less and like show it people. Uh, so that would be my mindset there and do yeah, my and best to age backwards and just show people it can be done. And given the yeah. shitty beginning I had epigenetically and health-wise and, and being old when I was young, like if I could do that and like have several companies and do all the stuff I do at my age with kids and a and a wife and all that, like seriously, I had a worse start than anyone listening probably. So like you could do better. <laughs> That's yeah. all I want to yeah. say. Yeah, no, I love that. That makes a ton of sense to me. Well, well Kelly, your book is totally worth reading on multiple different levels. So, so you're listening to Bulletproof Radio. You clearly know kind of the way I think. You'll just find Own Yourself has that nice mix of the emotional, psychological, spiritual, and the physical, and, and sort of how it all comes together. So go to kellybroganmd.com uh, slash ownyourself, I think is probably the right URL for that, or just go to wherever you like to buy books. Own Yourself is easy to remember. Uh, you might have heard me say multiple times while building the field of biohacking, own your own biology is a key part mm. of the languaging I, that I use, and owning yourself is so much in alignment with that. So check it out, and as you know, Gratitude makes you younger, more attractive, richer, happier, and everything else. And the way you express gratitude that is most effective for you is to leave a book review for authors. So if you like Aww. Own Yourself, go to Amazon and be like, hey, it was worth my time to read this. I give it X number of stars and whatever. And that is, uh, that is a highly ethical thing to do, just like tipping your Uber driver. So do that. And authors, all of us, me included, appreciate that. And it actually makes a difference in mm. the world. Yeah. Word of mouth. It's the most powerful uh, media we have. So it, it thank you. And, and while you're listening to this, if you feel tempted to troll someone, we just totally laid you out like a butterfly pinned to a wax board here, you trolls. Like we've got your number. And if you do it, we are going to hack you emotionally, psychologically, physically, did I say emotionally, and all sorts of other nefarious dark ways, and you're going to wake up with deep, dark nightmares, and you're going to have to use psychedelics to fix it. So wouldn't it be easier <laughs> if you just had something nice? I I'm just saying here. I mean, no threat implied or intended. Ha, ha, ha. Hope you enjoyed this episode. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.